Welcome to Word at Nine, a podcast dedicated to lifting up the voices of student preachers at Yale Divinity School. I'm your host, Christy Stang. Today we welcome Peter Strobel as our preacher. Peter is a second year MDiv with Andover Newton at Yale, and he is pursuing ordination in the UCC. The following sermon was written for and delivered to Lordship Community Church UCC in Stratford, Connecticut, while he was doing his supervised ministry during the pandemic. Peter, thank you for your reflections. The book of Job is a book of questions. Besides its beginning and ends, which set up the conflict for the story and then offer a resolution, the majority of Job is dedicated to a dialogue between Job and his three friends. Eliphaz, the Temanites, Balad, the Shuhites, and Zophar, the Nahamites, in which said friends try to discern what Job did to deserve the loss of his sons, daughters, livestock, wealth, and health. Rather than supporting or comforting Job, these friends take it upon themselves to determine Job's sins so that he can have his life restored. Even though Job claims that he's innocent, that he has done nothing wrong, Job's friends view his claims as a refusal to accept responsibility for sin. And so, despite Job's claims that he has done nothing wrong, Job's friends assume the role of judges rather than supporters. Even though they are, they are unqualified to judge, Job's friends view the positive direction of their own lives as divine support. According to their logic, since their lives are going well, they must be favored by God. By the same logic, Job must be below his friends and all others who are thriving because it would not be possible for a godly person to suffer. Unfortunately, as readers of Job, we know that this is not the case. A reading of the book of Job is an exercise in frustration. As readers, we know from the beginning that Job is innocent, that he is simply being tested by Satan. However, Job and his friends are not privy to this key bit of information. As readers, we can use this hidden knowledge to better understand Job's suffering, to craft a meaning for his loss that prevents his trials from being a senseless bit of misfortune. However, this background information comes at a cost. If we read the entire book of Job, we end up enduring 35 chapters of Job and his friends struggling to explain his situation all the while knowing that they have no idea what they are talking about. Although this is far from the only time that a group of men has rambled without saying anything of substance. These four men, elders in their society who were admired and sought out as sources of wisdom, were completely baffled by a turn of events that defied their expectations and norms. Yet this did not stop Job's friends from trying to provide answers or using this moment of misfortune to speak for God. Even though, as readers, we know these answers could not be further from the truth. Within these 35 chapters of questions and answers, Job's friends overlook a time-tested key to wisdom. That wisdom is found in asking questions rather than offering answers. This discussion of wisdom and false lessons brings us to today's lesson, in which Job answers his friend's questions with a question, asking, but where shall wisdom be found and where is the place of understanding? In answer to his question, Job replies, God understands the way to it and knows its place. 
truly the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. While Job's friends' inability to cloak their human answers as divine judgments, Job humbles himself by laying bare his inability to possess the wisdom of God. At this moment, it is revealed who the true sinners and fools are. In their attempt to act as representatives of God, Job's friends committed the greatest sin of all. They deluded themselves into believing they could understand God, and in doing so, placed themselves in a position where they were out of their depths. In most cases, this would be where the story would end. An innocent man would be persecuted and judged, while his judges would return home, elevated to a new level of smugness and self-righteousness. However, Job's story is far from usual. In the story of Job, God enters the reign. After Job has been questioned and berated by his friends and a nearby youth, to the surprise of all, God shows up to answer Job's questions. However, instead of offering an answer, God enters with more questions. In four chapters, God delivers the most epic tongue lashing in the entirety of the Bible. It appears that God grew tired of having humans speak for God, of blaming God for their own misfortune. In these four chapters of dialogue, God tears down the qualifications of any who would dare speak for God, revealing the insignificance of human accomplishments and wisdom when compared to the creator of all things, the source of wisdom itself. However, in a turn of expectations, even after ridiculing Job for his complaints and questions, God does not abandon Job. Instead, God turns on the very men who assumed God was on their side. Even after berating Job for Bimonia's fate, God sides with Job because Job recognized that God does not use earth to enact justice on humans. And this twist of fate Job's friends are found lacking and are only saved from punishment because Job had prayed they would not suffer their foolishness. Once again, when God enters the ring, expectations are unraveled and the wise are revealed as fools. In the search for wisdom, those who offer answers are left wanting, while those who are open to questions to the unknown are vindicated. Before I entered seminary, my childhood pastor passed on a piece of wisdom that has kept me grounded. He told me that the most critical thing a pastor can do is be willing to admit, I do not know. He warned me that in the years to come, when I encounter lives turned upside down, it will be tempting to say things like, everything happens for a reason. This was all part of God's plan. God needed another angel or any other line of comfort that places blame with God. He told me that even as a leader of faith, it is not my place to speak for God, that I am not meant to have all the answers. In this bit of wisdom, I remember again that the hardest part of being human, being a person of faith, is being left with only questions, without the comfort of answers. However, it is in the pain of our questions, of the common experience, that we are brought together. When bad things happen, it is tempting to seek answers. As beings reliant on thought and willpower, it can feel unnatural to face tragedy without looking for a deeper meaning. When we rely on everything making sense or being connected, anything that defies explanation can rear up in direct opposition to faith and belief. 
I'm sure I'm not the only one that has yelled, why, into the abyss. The same why that has left the lips of parents holding children gone too soon, of refugees reeling for the loss of homes, of those diagnosed with terminal illnesses, arises from every generation that comes to want to know why suffering exists. We want it to make sense, to know what we have to do to avoid tragedy or pain. In our attempt to avoid chaos and uncertainty that arise from misfortune and suffering that strike indiscriminately, we create laws, codes of living, morality, narratives of good and bad. We paint a black and white picture where the good people win in every story, where fame, fortune, and success are all deserved and earned because of hard work and being good people. If only it were that simple. However, it's not. Sometimes bad things happen to good people. Sometimes the protagonist does not get a Disney ending. Sometimes villains thrive without facing justice, while the innocent face persecution or rot away in a prison for a crime they did not commit. There are days when darkness seems to win, days when systematic racism seems unbreakable, where the rich seem to inherit the kingdom of God only for the poor to be left outside. Sometimes the haze of oppression, fear, hate and distrust is too thick to remember what love, peace, and goodwill look like. In these dark days, we find solace within the story of Job because we find ourselves bound in moments with the greatest potential for faith-breaking or faith-making. Good things happen to good people is a mantra of human optimism, but it's not a basis of faith. Faith is more than good moments that make it appear that God is on someone's side. Faith is the entire experience of existence, both ups and downs. Maybe that is why faith is so hard. Depending on your perspective or your interpretation, the story of Job breaks or makes one's faith. For those who have fallen in hard times, the story of Job is a reassurance that the, one, that the state of one's circumstances are not an indication of God's wrath. For those in good times, especially those in power, the story of Job is hard to stomach because it goes against all notions of divine sanctions, of ideas of manifest destiny, of God backing wars, of God being on the side of the rich and powerful. In this story, where Job's friends represent these rich and powerful, those who lack wisdom but are quick to offer answers and shame a man at his lowest, those who believe to have God on their side, we see humans fail in their role of faith. In this story, Job's friends neglect their role as humans and friends by failing to listen and support someone who is already in the worst day of his life. At his lowest, Job does not need to know what he has done wrong or to be condemned. He needs friends. He needs a support network to help him carry through what seems to be a life that is at an end. However, a condemnation of Job's friends does not end with three individuals. It extends to any who claim to speak for God, yet use their place of privilege and power to add undue punishments and burdens on the downtrodden. As humans, it is not our place to decide who is good or bad, who does or does not have God's favor. In our precarious state of existence, we are called to come together as a community so that even on someone's worst day, they might still have a friend, neighbor, or family member to offer a hand and a shoulder to lean on. As Christians, we answer a difficult call that bids us come and die. 
to give up our vanity, greed, and divisions so that we may be humble enough to live in communities that are more than homeowner codes, laws of conduct, and an envious arms race to keep up with the Joneses. In this vulnerable community of Christ, we give up the false security of answers so that we may lean into questions and accept the insight of others. Through this death of the self, we transcend the weakness of the individual, a weakness tied into a loose mixture of primal urges and instincts that are only overcome through common sacrifice and care. When we accept our, when we accept our susceptibility and staggering vulnerability, we become open to care for neighbors without reserve and finally offer compassion and love without exception. When we achieve this, we finally understand that it's not our place to ask the impoverished why they are poor or to judge what has led to someone's ill health. As people who wax and wane between doubt and faith, we accept that it's not our place to render judgment or discern who has God on their side. All that we can do, the best that we can do, is to endure together so that even on the worst of days, we might be okay, even if we are not okay. Amen. This has been Word at Nine, a podcast dedicated to lifting up the voices of student preachers at Yale Divinity School. Thank you for listening.